Welcome, Alternative News listeners. This is 91.7 KOOP Community Radio. This is bringing light into darkness, news, and analysis. I'm your host, Pedro Gatos, and we are transmitting from Austin, Texas, for your listening edification. Today is Sunday, June the 12th, 2022, and this show will be rebroadcast on Monday, June the 20th, 2022, from 6 p.m. to 7 p.m. Central Standard Time. Please join us. At koop.org. All comments are welcomed and can be sent to Pedro at pgatos00 at gmail.com. That's pgatos00 at gmail.com. Many of the shows are archived at pedrogatos.org. This is our 112th post COVID show. A new world, but the same place. So stay tuned for a very informed and documented dialogue. Thank you for joining us. And we hope to have a recording of the show up on pedrogatos.org website for your closer scrutiny within the week. Again, thank you for joining us tonight, and thanks for inviting your friends to join us in future shows. So stay tuned. But first, in the battle of ideas, let's get ready to go to war. Welcome. This is Bringing Light into Darkness, Monday News and Analysis on the premier community radio station of the nation, 91.7 KOOP Hornsby Austin. Thank you for joining us on our Bringing Light into Darkness Juneteenth 2022 show. Enjoy. All right. Welcome, alternative news listeners. This is 91.7 KOOP Hornsby Austin. This is Bringing Light into Darkness Monday News and Analysis. I am your host, Pedro Gatos. We have a Juneteenth show lined up for you that's a very powerful, informative show. I think you will find it to be at least. Before introducing our very special guest, I wanted to introduce the subject of today's show. This month is Co-op Radio's Juneteenth Celebration Event Month that features Juneteenth, the oldest nationally celebrated commemoration of the ending of slavery in the United States, dating back to 1865. It was on June 19th that year that the Union soldiers led by Major General Gordon Granger landed at Galveston, Texas, with news that the war had ended and that the enslaved were now free. However, this was two and a half years after President Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation, which had become official on January 1st, 1863. If we fast forward to May 17, 1954, another landmark legal reform, in addition to the Emancipation Proclamation, was made this time by our Supreme Court in the case ruling in Brown versus the Board of Education and Bowling versus Sharp was made. The U.S. Supreme Court unanimously ruled that the separate but equal doctrine in Plessy and Ferguson was unconstitutional under the 14th Amendment, which guaranteed equal treatment under the law. But again, promises in law were not executed in practice on behalf of Blacks, as more than a decade later, from 1954, in a 1965 speech by Malcolm X, he points out this important contradiction. Just like with the Emancipation Proclamation, nearly a century before, laws made but not followed enabled second-class citizenry of Black U.S. citizens to continue. In fact, Malcolm X, referring to this 1954 Supreme Court decision, he claimed the highest court of our land declared and promised equal treatment under the law and an end to segregation as the rule of the land. As yet just another example, much like the Juneteenth example, 
both were followed by inaction and maintenance of the status quo, despite quote unquote laws of the land, laws and legal mandates that were followed by a refusal to enforce them. And as proved to support Malcolm's conclusions that this system was incapable of bringing justice and equality to black Americans. In a speech a decade after that Supreme Court decision, Malcolm X alluded to this point in his February 14th, 1965 speech, just one week before his assassination. This is what he said, quote, I would like to point out that the approach that was used by the administration right up until today by even the present generation was designed skillfully to appear that they were trying to solve the problem when they actually were not. They would deal with the conditions, but never the cause. They only gave us tokenism. Tokenism benefits only the few. It never benefits the masses. And the masses are the ones that have the problems, not the few, end quote. And so we ask, is it sufficient progress to have progressive law changes if they are not followed while second-class citizenry for Blacks continues well into the 21st century? Today, gross inequalities continue to exist. Many of them have been documented on previous shows. And for us at Bringing Light into Darkness, it begs the question, can progress at the same time be a lack of progress? Anyhow, one other diversion from the beginning of our show wanted to highlight that there was an important paper, this unjust and unjust burden. This was actually a paper authored by Elizabeth Hinton, uh, an assistant professor at the Department of History and Department of African and American Studies at Harvard University. She had some co-authors, and this is in a May 2018 report that I thought was important to also introduce. They point out that Black men comprise about 13% of the male population, but about 35% of those incarcerated. And one in three Black men born today in 2018 can expect to be incarcerated in his lifetime compared to one in six Latino men and one in 17 white men. So that's an incarcerated rate over five times greater for, for Blacks and whites. Black women actually had six times the greater rate of incarceration than white women. One in 18 Black women born in 2001 was likely to be incarcerated sometime in her life, and that compared to one in 111 white women. And finally, in the brief itself that they present, I just wanted to highlight a few of these deals because I think it's so important that people realize and understand that second-class citizenry continues well into the 21st century for African-Americans here on Juneteenth, 2022. The brief goes on to say, discriminatory criminal justice policies and practices have historically and unjustifiably targeted Black people since the Reconstruction era, including Black codes, vagrancy laws, and convict leasing, all of which were used to continue post-slavery control over newly freed people. Again, concepts that we've documented on the show. This discrimination continues today, the brief goes on, but often in less overt ways, including through disparity in the enforcement of seemingly race-neutral laws. For example, White rates of drug use are similar across racial and ethnic groups. Black people are arrested and sentenced on drug charges, though, at a much higher rate than white people. Bias by decision makers at all stages of the justice process disadvantages Black people. Studies have found that they are more likely to be stopped by the police, detained pretrial, 
uh, charged with more serious crimes and sentenced more harshly than white people. And then living in poor communities exposes people to risk factors for both offending and arrest and a history of structural racism and inequality of opportunity means that Black people are more likely to be living in such conditions of concentrated poverty. So the other thing that I wanted to tie into that was the Brady Group. I think you might remember Ronald Reagan's aide on March 30th, 1981, Jim Brady, during an assassination attempt against President Reagan, was shot along with two other law enforcement officers. Jim Brady suffered a serious head injury and gun violence on their Brady Group website there alone reduces the life expectancy of Black Americans by four years. And I thought that was important because it blends into a not well-known concept, weathering. And this fact of the four years of lost life by Blacks from gun violence forms part of the causal effects around what Dr. Arlene Geronimus research led to, namely that scientific validation of the weathering hypothesis that Blacks, due to the cumulative impact of racism and discrimination in the 21st century, lost an average of a decade or more life expectancy compared to whites. And yet the U.S. largely ignores the external systemic factors driving this inequality and violence in Black neighborhoods to the state. And then lastly, These evaluations are not done just by scientists here in the United States, but the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights Committee on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination called out the United States high number of gun-related deaths and injuries, which disproportionately affect members of racial and ethnic minorities, particularly African-Americans, end quote. And again, in this Brady piece, they indicate that gun homicide, mass shootings, so-called everyday violence and police-involved shootings is a universal American threat, but Black Americans are 10 times more likely than white Americans to die from it. And Black youth fare even worse. Black children and teens are 14 times more likely to die from gun homicide than their white counterparts. Now, with that introduction, I wanted to formally welcome our guest, Lance Cooper. And Lance, first, welcome to Bringing Light Into Darkness. Thank you for having me. Glad to be here. I wanted to introduce Lance. He's been living in in Denton, Texas. I'm not so sure if he's still there or he's in Austin now, but he divides his time between researching about historical events. He practices law. He's a a writer of fiction and, and quite frankly, most recently has been producing a podcast that I've been listening to that uh, is very provocative. It's called The Other Side of the Story, Slavery in, in Texas. Lance is a graduate of Baylor University, where he got his BA and also got his master's at the University of of North Texas and his law degree at Texas Tech. He's written a number of articles related to law and in Texas history and in scholarly journals. And he's also the author of a book, Let My Soul Fly, a novel for kids and adults about slavery in Texas. I wanted to turn to one of your podcasts, but before we did that, Lance, Let me ask you, what pointed your interest towards this subject of your podcast and your very significant commitment to try to bring light to these injustices? Well, I learned about 
how important slavery was to Texas, to the Texas economy, Texas culture and society. Only when I was in graduate school, I really didn't know much about it. Um, although I grew up in Texas, went through Texas public schools. And when I went to graduate school at the University of North Texas, as you mentioned, I uh, studied, uh, focused on Texas legal history, reconstruction. And, and then I started bumping into the topic of slavery, in part because my thesis advisor was a professor named Randolph Campbell. And he is really the leading scholar on slavery in Texas. And the more I began to learn about it, it just fascinated me because, again, I really didn't understand the importance of slavery in Texas, in antebellum Texas. Whenever I thought about Texas history, I tended to think about, you know, cowboys, and the oil boom and such. And just kind of, I think like many folks in Texas, just kind of glossed over or was unaware of, of the importance of slavery. I found that fascinating. I found it intriguing. Why do so many of us really not know much about it? And I've thought about that over the, the years. It's been a number of years since graduate school. And I decided that rather than write a, you know, an, an article in a scholarly journal or something like that, I would try to use a medium that perhaps more folks might find accessible to talk about slavery, to talk about why it's important uh, that we understand uh, the role it played, again, in Texas history. And so I decided a few years ago, I started writing scripts for a podcast. So that's how that how that came about. Well, let me ask you this, because I actually had the opportunity to listen to one of the episodes of your podcast, and I wanted you to speak a little bit more to it. And really, I wanted to focus the rest of the show really on one particular episode, because it's, it's so powerful and comprehensive. It was this episode number eight, Pain and Fear, was the episode, and it's described as exploring a difficult topic the physical and emotional brutality faced by enslaved Texans. You know, one of the things about the coverage of Black studies on this show, which has been extensive over the last couple of decades, is we've never really focused on the specifics of that period of our history, of what it would have been like for a U.S. slave, per se, or even a slave owner, and the laws that rationalized those treatments and such. And in, in this particular episode, and I want to play part of it here in a little bit, but the first part, you allude to the slave revolt in St. Dominique, which of course now is Haiti, and it gained its independence in 1803, only after a very bloody slave uprising. There's a only successful Black slave revolt in history in this, in this hemisphere, and it instilled great, apparently great fear into American slave owners, as you mentioned in your episode. But before I ask you to respond to that as well, I did think it was important that people see that St. Dominique was the most profitable slave colony in the history of the Western Hemisphere. And if you really want to think about the accumulation of wealth and how nations make wealth and how elite within those nations disproportionately benefit from that wealth at the expense of others, Haiti and Dominique is a great example of what fueled the French to their very powerful colonial status back in that period. But you also go on to talk then about the subsequent Constitution of Texas in 1836. And maybe you could start by just talking about the impact of the slave revolt and then also the significance of understanding the Constitution of Texas of 1836 and its effect upon the legal status of slaves versus the rights of slave owners. Sure. And let me unpack that this way. And this is I think this might, the order of this might make the most, hopefully make the most sense to your listeners. And this is kind of what I did in my podcast. Because although this 
podcast, the scope of it is slavery in Texas. In the first few episodes, I go beyond that because you have to understand the broader context of how did slavery wind up in Texas? How did Texas become a slave society? It didn't just happen, you know, and you have to look at the motivations of the people, mostly the Anglo people who brought slavery to Texas. And uh, as you mentioned, a big part of that really is what was going on in the Caribbean, in Haiti, what is now Haiti, and also in Jamaica and other areas. So that region had become a huge sugar production area uh, dominated by the British and the French. And they were hugely profitable. Um, Europeans had developed a, a craving for sugar. And so Haiti, for example, virtually every acre on the island was dedicated to the production of sugar. And these slave societies there, these colonies, life there was just brutal for the workers. Um, I think the average lifespan of a worker was probably seven or eight years. Uh, basically, let's just burn through these people, use them up, and we'll bring more folks over from Africa. That was basically the attitude. And so when the enslaved workers in Haiti rebelled, as you mentioned successfully, that struck terror uh, in the hearts of white slave owners throughout the region, including North America. And I, I mentioned in, in, I think it's the second or third episode of the podcast, that, for example, President Thomas Jefferson, I quote from a letter of his, he's fearful that this spirit of revolution, which we had looked upon glowingly when it was in regard to our own revolution, was considered with great fear in the, in the new United States. And so this rebellion in Haiti, it really cast a shadow, sort of a cast a pall in the, in the minds of slave owners throughout North America. And so as, and this was always in the back of their minds, the fear of slave rebellion. And so as land in the United States South became more expensive, Settlers couldn't afford land in the, in the old South. So, you know, we probably Texans, we probably all know the story. You know, Moses Austin and then Stephen F. Austin worked with Mexico to begin bringing Anglo settlers into Texas. And most of these settlers were from the South. And so they carried with them this slave society that they had experienced in, you know, Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana, and so on. And so that's how slavery really got its hooks in Texas. Lance, yeah. excuse me for interrupting, but I think it's really important what you're saying about the experience in St. Dominique. If you study that period of time, it was not just a threat to the French slaveholders or just a threat to the French economy, but who came to their aid to help put this rebellion down? The UK. The UK was a big colonial power at that time in the same part of the hemisphere. Even the Spanish as well, and even the United States as a much weaker nation at that period of history, provided some amount of financial and military equipment aid. So this was a whole threat to the institution of slavery that was building fortunes for France and these other colonial powers. In fact, this is the basis of the accumulation of wealth for these developed nations off the backs of slavery. But excuse me for interrupting and Please return to your, your comments and description of this Texas history and its constitution. Sure. And, and that's a great point because it points up how much they felt like they had to lose. And by they, I mean European powers in the United States, which also points up, again, how much money they were making from the sugar trade. And also, after the invention of the cotton gin, how much money was being made in cotton. And in the early 1800s, cotton really became the thing. You may have heard that the founders of our nation, they kind of had this vague sense that maybe slavery would just fade away over time. 
just kind of go away. Well, when cotton became such a big deal, and it was such a big deal because it was it was really one of the first mass consumer products. People in England and elsewhere, they really liked cotton. It was much more comfortable than wool. Uh, it was easier to work with, it was durable, and so on. And so cotton became this hugely significant part of an, an international trade. And these early textile mills in the Northeast, you may have heard of the Lowell Mills, really much, much larger complexes over in Manchester and over in, over in England. They needed massive amounts of cotton to meet the demand. And the overwhelming region where that cotton was grown was from the United States, uh, more than 80%, I believe. They were already getting some from India, but most of it was from the United States, from enslaved labor. And so if you have Anglo-Americans in the southern United States, they're having difficulty affording land in Mississippi and Alabama, but they hear there's affordable land in Texas, and they all have dreams of empire. They want to create this place where they can grow cotton. Slavery will not be impeded by this slowly growing uh, abolition movement in the North. They wanted a place where they could go and make their dreams come true for profit. Mm -hmm. So that's what they saw in Texas. Very good. And so you mentioned also in your overview of the Constitution of Texas that the way in which slaves were kept in their place were things about Slave owners actually wanted other slaves to witness beatings. Black people were not allowed under the Constitution, or at least the law of Texas. They were not allowed to testify against white people. Slave owners, with their property right, were significant over the slaves, carried greater legal weight than slave rights. You also then go into something that was really disturbing, but I think important for people to see. We've seen pictures of the result of beatings and whippings and such. But there were a bunch of Texas law violations that were all kind of like grounds for quote unquote legalizing or legitimating beatings. And there was a number of things. And can you share what those were and how even when it came to communication on how a black person would speak or communicate to a white person could be a violation as well? Can, can you kind of highlight that reality for the black slaves during that period of time? Yes. And what you're describing, I think you could consider the origin of that. You'd earlier mentioned the Constitution of the Republic of Texas. I think that was a foundational document that sort of set this in motion. When Texas won its independence from Mexico, the people who wrote the Republic's Constitution, they really cemented the legality of slavery, and they meant to do it for all time. Congress, they did not have the right to free enslaved people on its own initiative. Now, slave owners could petition to free enslaved people. That was, of course, very rare, but they had to get congressional permission. Texas was very hostile to free African-Americans. It was a very difficult place for the the few free African-Americans who were in the Republic uh, to live. And so that, that sort of set the tone for Texas. And there wasn't anything in the Constitution about how do you treat enslaved people as a slave owner? or as an overseer? What, what are the limits, if any, to the sort of, well, you know, physical abuse you could, you could dole out? It wasn't until, I think, 1840 that the first statute passed. It was a, a brief statute just saying, don't abuse them, you know, to an unusual degree, to a cruel degree, something like that. But it was a little bit vague and didn't really have much teeth in it. So later, when Texas became part of the United States, There was additional legislation passed that clarified somewhat what folks could do with their enslaved people. 
And I'll just read a little bit of that statute. I just pulled it up here. It is cruel treatment of a slave to inflict an unusual degree of punishment without just provocation or to torture or to cause unusual pain and suffering to a slave by the use of any means or to subject such slave to punishment so severe as to become injurious to his health. And it goes on a little bit longer. But really, as your question kind of suggests, what did that really mean to enslave Texans? Um, in many ways, not a lot, because there weren't many prosecutions in the big scheme of things brought under this statute. And they were difficult to bring because black people were not allowed to testify against white people. So if you imagine a typical Texas plantation, an overseer delivers a whipping to an enslaved person. Well, who's going to see that? The overseer is going to see it, maybe the slave owner. And they have no interest, obviously, in incriminating themselves. So it's the victim and perhaps some other enslaved workers. Well, the victim and the enslaved workers can't testify. So where do you go with that? There's really nowhere to go. Mm -hmm. right. right. So there just weren't, for example, if slaves were beaten to death, there just were very few prosecutions. Very good. Lance, let me just remind our listeners that this is a special Juneteenth Bringing Light into Darkness show featuring our special guest. And we need to take a brief pause for the cause. And when we come back, we will rejoin our guest, Lance Cooper. Please stay tuned and don't touch that dial. <laughs> 